Why have you chosen the Old Bank Hotel? Well, it's, um, it's got a great location, slap bang in the middle of the high street. So I thought if you were coming from outside of Oxford, uh, it would be easy to find it and it's easy to get back to the station if you came on the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah particularly on a day like this. And I quite like it. You've lived in Oxford now for how long? Decades. Yeah, I was a um, graduate student here. I think I arrived in about 1987 or 8. And I was at Trinity College. I did the BPhil. Then I did my doctorate. I was a research fellow, junior research fellow at the Queen's College for three years. I had a lectureship at Oriel College for a year. And then I got a job in London. But uh, we decided to stay in Oxford, living in Oxford, because it's actually quite easy to get into London from Oxford. Uh, so I've just been stuck here ever since. And once you've got kids, it's really hard to up sticks. Now, you were my professor at Haybrook College, which has sadly now closed its doors. Yes. And you taught me Wittgenstein in my third and final year. Um, we did do that. Yeah. And, uh, and in that time, I was very keen on, on the works of Soren Kierkegaard and phenomenology. And Wittgenstein was a philosopher that I'd come into contact with at sixth form, which led me to want to continue exploring the analytic tradition. But since graduating... The way in which I've tried to keep my philosophy muscle flexed has kind of been subverted by the way that debate and argument is had today. I want to avoid blindly using the term post-truth to describe what I mean here, but a philosophy student in 2018 might be forgiven for sensing that their skills are unlikely to register in modern discourse, particularly online debate. How would you defend the value of philosophy as a subject today? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Uh, when, when you're wearing your philosophy hat, you are at least officially interested in figuring out what is true. Whereas when we enter the debate arena, often it's, you know, win at all costs. You, you, you just want to get the right result by any means necessary. And so you won't necessarily use the same techniques. You'll start using techniques of persuasion that are not truth sensitive. I feel increasingly uncomfortable about doing that, obviously, as a philosopher. But if, you, if you're in the political sphere, you need, to, you need to get people on board. You need to persuade people. And you can do that in part by providing them with good reasons and arguments and so on. But inevitably, into that mix, you will also put things like you know, a little bit of emotional manipulation and uh, repetition. And uh, you, know, you would start appealing to these other mechanisms, which are just as effective whether or not the belief happens to be true or false. Well, some so, philosophers have some blame to take in this. I mean, Aristotle works on politics with just this sort of advice about how to argue persuasively for the, just yes, these ends. It used to be called a rhetoric, and it was a whole subject <laughs> in its own right. And there's, there's no doubt that, you know, if you want to persuade people, sometimes it's not in your interests to use the truth-conducive, the truth-sensitive mechanisms. I mean, the thing about philosophy that distinguishes it from some of those other disciplines is that you're, for the most part, focused not on, you know, developing the latest theory, but you're developing a set of techniques, you know, thinking skills, chops, ability to spot a logical howler, make a point with precision and clarity and so on. And these are clearly all very useful, highly transferable skills. And of those skills, which do you find most lacking? You're active on Twitter, you have close to 10,000 followers. You must notice how the declivities of people's critical thinking bear out mm. in particular mistakes and logical errors. So I wrote a book a few years ago called Believing Bullshit, mm. How Not to Fall into an Intellectual Black Hole. And I set out some mechanisms that you need to, you need to watch out for. One in particular I, I called But It Fits. 
which is the very tempting thought that if you can somehow make what you believe consistent with the available evidence, well then what you believe is just as reasonable as any other belief. Um, now the fact is that by all sorts of means you can make any belief, no matter how ludicrous, consistent with the available evidence. You know, you can explain the evidence away, you can cook up stories to account for what might seem to be contrary evidence. And an extreme example of that would be you know, some very deluded person who thinks dogs are spies from the planet Venus. Uh, if you present them with evidence that dogs can't even speak, they'll say, yeah, you are, but you see, they may be able to speak and they just keep all their linguistic abilities hidden from us. And if you say, but you know, they, they're not from Venus, there are no dogs on Venus, they say, no, the dogs are on Venus, we just can't detect them because they live in deep underground bunkers. Um, and you know, if you, if you point out that they have no way of communicating with Venus and setting up the invasion, you suggest that they have secret transmitters located in their brains. And when you cut open their brains and find no transmitters, you suggest in, in your defence that the transmitters are made out of organic material that can't be detected by our, our own current science. And they're transmitting on wavelengths or in, in, by some means that we can't yet detect. So you can just endlessly explain away the evidence in this kind of way. Uh, and you often find that game being played in religious circles. So, for example, young Earth creationism, the view that the entire universe is just 6,000 years old, that view is held by, if polls are to be believed, around about 45% of all American citizens, US citizens. The way in which that belief is justified and defended is precisely in the same why? And they are very, very good, some of these young earth creationists. You know, go to a website like answersingenesis.com and you can see the fossil record explained away. You can see the, the depth of the white cliffs of Dover explained away, the light mm. from distant stars explained away, and so on. They're very, very good, very, very ingenious at explaining away the, and accommodating the evidence. Also, you know, flat earthers, extremely, you know, sometimes they're very clever and they're really, really good at explaining away the evidence. And the mistake, the fundamental mistake that they're all making is they think that if they can somehow make what they believe fit or consistent with, not contradicted by the evidence, then what they believe is as rational as any other belief. And in fact, that's, that's not true. There are certain fallacies that seem to be I mean, just extraordinarily widespread. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the sheer volume of them online ad hominem could easily be described as being that which comes up as many times as you might expect, really. Alice Roberts, Professor Alice Roberts, has just come out and said she doesn't think the state should be funding religious schools. And immediately the defenders of religious schools have jumped on her and said, but you sent your kid to a, a Church of England school, so you're a hypocrite, so there you are, we win, you lose, you know, as if... Even if she was a hypocrite, which she isn't, <laughs> there are good reasons why she had. To. She was effectively forced to send her kid to a Church of England school. Even if she were a hypocrite, it would be irrelevant. Uh, her arguments and the arguments of humanists in the UK against faith schools would stand entirely. Now, I got into um, a discussion online with some people that were pressing this sort of ad hominem attack and pointed this out to them. And in many cases, they, they just, you know, it's like they've got their fingers in their ears. And I just going la 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 la. I can't hear you. Uh, it's you just cannot <laughs> get through to them, despite the fact that, it, that in another context where the ad hominem is being committed by somebody that whose views they dislike, um, they'd spot it immediately. Um, but some, but for some reason, 
they, they just can't see it. Even no matter how often you, you know, repeatedly point it out, uh, they just won't get it. As far as I know, there isn't a technical term for the fingers in ears position, <laughs> is there? The main question of this debate really is, <clears throat> is how do we uh, succumb to tribalism in the first place and, mm. and become immune, as you say, to counter evidence? One, one plausible evolutionary psychological <laughs> explanation is uh, that um, in our natural environment, it's very much to our advantage if we wish to survive and reproduce. It's very much to our advantage that we can detect agents, you know, other beings with beliefs and desires in the vicinity when they're there because they could be potential rivals, they could be thieves and murderers, they could be predators, it could be a saber-toothed tiger that's lurking in the bushes. And so if you miss an agent like that, uh, it's, it's potentially going to take you out of the gene pool. Whereas if you think there's an agent there and there isn't, well, you don't lose nearly so much. So evolutionary pressures have ensured mm. that we, we err very much on the side of over-detection. And for that reason then, when, you know, when you're walking home tonight in the dark and there's a rustle, rustle in the bushes, your first involuntary thought will be there's someone there. Uh, even though you can't see them. Um, you can't turn that off. It's hardwired in. Um, some psychologists have called it the hyperactive agency detecting device. We've all got one, um, and it just switches on and there's nothing you can do about it. So there's, you know, there, there's a, a causal scientific explanation for why we tend towards tribal thinking. There clearly is a bias. As to what causes the bias, um, I'm not so sure. So when did you become aware of the, the term tribalism? What examples of this have you found particularly alarming? When I was at Heathrop, I was not really aware of it at all. I wasn't really aware of very much political activity going on on campus at all, which is very often where it crops up. Um, well, obviously, I'm a little bit concerned about the way in which accusations of Islamophobia were being bandied about in a fairly cavalier fashion on campus and in fact associated with attempts to no-platform people that were critical of Islam. So, for example, Mariam Namazi, a very intelligent woman, was invited to speak at Goldsmiths uh, College to be critical of Islam, and I believe she was uh, certainly initially no-platformed, and it wasn't just the Islamic society, I think. It was the lesbian gay group there also that came out and said no she shouldn't be invited um, and I yeah I had some concerns about that um, it seems to me that yeah being critical of religious beliefs is is perfectly legitimate that's all that Mariam Namazi was doing she was targeting primarily beliefs and explaining why you know they're toxic they're hateful in her opinion for the most part that was my concern but I'm also concerned about the fact that, similarly, it seems to me, dubious charges of anti-Semitism are often also sometimes used on campus to shut down free speech. Um, and in fact, Stern, who authored the original IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, has uh, expressed his horror at the way his own definition has been applied on campus, shutting down free speech, start investigations against an academic, he called this a chilling effect of the uh, way in which his uh, definition of anti-Semitism was being abused. Um, and then there, there, were, there was another example with the Israeli embassy put pressure on a university to um, monitor a Holocaust survivor's talk, to get the title changed 
to record it to make sure that you know if, if everything was said was acceptable and so on. This is a serious concern, but you find that very often the people that are most concerned about the dodgy charges of Islamophobia have, have nothing whatsoever to say about dodgy charges of anti-Semitism. One of the reasons why journalists in the UK are quick to point out dodgy accusations of Islamophobia being used to shut down free speech but go peculiarly quiet when dodgy accusations of anti-Semitism are being used to shut down free speech is because they're frightened. It's precisely because dodgy accusations of anti-Semitism are a threat to free speech that they don't talk about it. It's the, it's the irony. Yeah. These are much bigger areas than we have time to explore without diverging into the politics of religion, though I know it's terrain uh, with which you are well acquainted. Probably the biggest example in this country over the last five years of widespread tribalism and immunity to counter-evidence has been the lead-up to the EU referendum. So let's talk a bit about how, how, how information was used to... <laughs> I can't even remember that, except that there was that bus, wasn't there? People talk about you know, the role of Cambridge Analytica and what was going on online. But in terms of causal clout, that is a drop in the bucket compared to decade after decade after decade front-wing tabloid newspapers talking about uh, Europe, bent bananas, up yours, Delors, on and on and on and on and on. The hatred, the poison that has just been pouring out of those publications for, for you know, literally decades, that had far more to do with our leaving than anything else. Without that, it would never have happened. There certainly has been evidence to suggest that the issues that the British general public tend to be most wrong about tend to be the very things that those newspapers repeatedly um, misinform them about. Uh, the two things correlate extremely well. Hmm. I mean, it's quite clear that the tribalist subtext of Brexit, beyond the Leave-Remain debate, is that these are two halves of British society that have been drifting apart further and further over the years. The professionalised, liberal middle class versus the uh, nationally rooted, community orientated working class and I think immunity to counter evidence in this respect from either side of the argument comes from the desire to defend identity which if you look at what the working class has given up over the past 40 years should come as no wonder really and they came out and voted in numbers that they had never that they would never vote uh, in a general election to say you know F you uh, to the establishment that has been screwing us horrifically for a very long period of time now. Um, and if that's what they were doing, well, I've got some sympathy <laughs> because the truth is we have been screwing them horrendously uh, for a very long period of time. Although the middle class are increasingly the target. If you're a middle class person you, and you own quite a nice home, well, they'll be wanting some of the value of that to pay for your social care so that the very wealthy you pay a great deal towards your social care, won't have to pay for it anymore. That money is going to be moved upwards. Um, tuition fees, who used to pay for that? The bulk of it would have been paid by people right at the very top. Um, now it's all being forced downwards onto the middle class kids and eventually the penny may drop and they may get together with those further down the ladder and um, do something rather more dramatic. Yeah, perhaps they'll create that unified tribe across English society that is, of course, the perennial pipe dream of the nation. Uh, I'm not sure we can count on that happening anytime soon. So perhaps we should leave it there.
Also, by the way, I have your head of Plato on my desk at home now. Oh, do you? Oh, right. When you Good. cleared out your office, it I was left there. It. Yeah, yeah, I decided I wasn't going yeah. to be able to make use of it. Yeah, that's got a good <laughs> I inherited it. Yeah. All right, let's think about ordering something from the menu.